Today I'm speaking with Kevin Kelly. Kevin helped launch Wired Magazine and was its executive editor for his first seven years. So he knows a thing or two about digital media. And he's written for the New York Times, The Economist, Science, Time Magazine, The Wall Street Journal, and many other publications. His previous books include Out of Control, New Rules for the New Economy, Cool Tools, and What Technology Wants. And his most recent book is The Inevitable, Understanding the 12 Technological Forces That Will Shape Our Future. And Kevin and I focused on this book, and then spent much of the conversation talking about AI, the safety concerns around it, the, the nature of intelligence, the concept of the singularity, the prospect of artificial consciousness, and the ethical implications of that. And it was great. We don't agree about everything, but I really enjoyed the conversation. And I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. And now I bring you Kevin Kelly. I am here with Kevin Kelly. Kevin, thanks for coming on the podcast. Oh, man, I'm enjoying this right now. Yeah. <laughs> Listen, there's so many people have asked for you, and um, obviously, I, you know, I've known you and about you for many years. So we'll, I'll talk about how we first met at some point. You're so on top of recent trends that are subsuming everyone's lives that it's just great to get a chance to talk to you. Well, thanks for having me. So before we, we jump into all these common topics of interest, how would you describe what you do? I package ideas, and they're often visual packages, but um, uh, I like to take ideas, and not necessarily my ideas, but other people's ideas, and um, present them in some way. And that kind of uh, is what I did with magazines, beginning with the Whole Earth Review, formerly called Coevolution Quarterly, the Whole Earth Catalogs, Wired, websites like Cool Tools, and my books. So you've written these two recent books on technology, What Technology Wants, and your most recent one, The Inevitable. How would you summarize the arguments you, you put forward in those books? At one level, I'm actually trying to devise a proto-theory of technology. So, so you know, before Darwin's theory of biology, the evolutionary theory, um, there was a lot of naturalists, and they had these curiosity cabinets where they would just collect uh, biological specimens, and there was just one weird creature after another. There was no framework for understanding how they were related or how they came about. And in many ways, technology is like that with us. We have this sort of parade of one invention after another, and there's really no theory about how these different species of technology are related and how they come together. So at one level, my books were trying to devise a rough theory of their origins. And perhaps no surprise, cutting to the punchline, I see these as, a, as an extension and acceleration of the same forces that are at work in natural evolution or cosmic evolution for that matter. And that, um, and that what we, what, and that if you look at it in that way, this, this system of technology that I call the tech team is, is in some ways the extension and acceleration 
of the self-organizing forces that are running through the cosmos. So that's one thing that I'm trying to do. And the second thing I'm trying to do is to say that um, uh, there is a deterministic element in this, um, both in evolution and in um, technological systems. Uh, and a lot of, at the very high level, a lot of what we're going to see and have seen is following kind of a, a natural progression and so therefore is inevitable. And that we as humans, individuals, and corporately need to embrace these things in order to be able to steer the many ways in which we do have control and choice. The character of these. So I would say like the once you invented electrical wires and you invented uh, switches and stuff, you'd have telephones. And so the telephone was inevitable, but the character of the telephone was not inevitable. You know, iPhone was not inevitable. And, and um, we have a lot of choices about those, but the only way we make those choices is by embracing and using these things rather than prohibiting them. So now, now you start the book, The Inevitable, with some very amusing stories about how clueless people were about the significance of the internet in particular. I was vaguely aware of some of these howlers, but you just wrap them all up in one paragraph, and it's, it's amazing how blind people were to what was coming. So you, you, you cite Time and Newsweek saying that, that more or less the internet would amount to nothing. One network executive said it would be the CB radio of the 90s. There was a Wired writer who bought the domain name for McDonald's, mcdonalds.com, and couldn't give it away to McDonald's because they couldn't see why it would ever be valuable to them. Now, I don't recall being quite that clueless myself, but I, I'm, I'm continually amazed at my inability to see what's coming here. And I mean, if you had told me five years ago that I would soon be spending much of my time podcasting, I would have said, what's a podcast? And if you had told me what a podcast was, essentially describing it as on-demand radio, I would have been absolutely certain that there was no way I was going into radio. Just it would not apply. I feel personally no ability to see what's coming. Why do you think it is so difficult for most people to see into the, even the very near future here? Yeah, it's a really good question. It's, it's, I, don't, I don't think I have a good answer about why we find it hard to imagine the future. But it is true that the more we know about, the, in other words, the experts in a f certain field are often the ones who are most blinded by the changes. We did this thing at Wired called Reality Check, and we would poll different experts. and non-experts in some future things like you know whether they're going to use like laser drilling in dentistry or um you know um, flying cars and stuff like that and and they would have dates and when these came around later on in, in the future it was the experts who were always underestimating who 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 are i guess overestimating when things were going to happen there was they were more pessimistic and it was sort of the people who so the people who knew the most about things were often the ones that were most wrong. And um, so I think, I, I think it's kind of like we know too much and we um, find it hard to release and believe things that seem impossible. Um, so so I, I, the other observation I would make about the things that have surprised me the most in, in the last 30 years, and I think the things that will continue to surprise us in the next 30 years all have to do with the fact 
that the things that are most surprising are actually things are done in collaboration at a scale that we did not seen before, like things like Wikipedia, Facebook, or even cell phones and smartphones to some extent, that basically we are kind of organizing work in collaboration at a scale that was just really unthinkable before. And that, that's where a lot of these surprises have been originating is this this the the our ability to collaborate in real time in in scales that that were just unthinkable before and so they seemed impossible and um for me most of the surprises have have been in have had that connection well i know you and i want to talk about ai because i think that's that's an area where we'll find some i think significant overlap but also some disagreement and I want to spend most of our time talking about that, but I do want to touch on some of the the issues you raise in in the inevitable, because you you divide the book into these these twelve trends. I'm sure some of those will come back around in our discussion of AI. But take an example of, I mean, let's say this podcast. I mean, one one change that a podcast represents over radio is that it's it's on demand. You can listen to it whenever you want to listen to it. It's instantly accessible. In this case, it's free, so there's no there's no barrier to listening to it. People can slice it and dice it in any way they want. They, they people remix it. That people have taken snippets of it and put it behind music, so it becomes the basis for other people's creativity. Ultimately, I would imagine all the audio that exists and all the video that exists will be searchable in a way that text is currently searchable, which is a, that's a real weakness now. But eventually, you'll be able to search and get exactly the snippet of audio you want, this change in just this one domain of, of how people listen to a conversation, that captures some of these trends, right? Exactly. So there was the, the flow or the, 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 the verb of the remixing was, to your point, the fact that um, that was the big, the big change in, in music, which the music companies didn't kind of understand. They, they thought that the free aspect of downloads of these files was because people wanted to cheat them and get things for free but the 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 chief value was that the the freeze and freedom is that people could take these music files they could get less than an album they could kind of remix them into singles they could then manipulate them make them into playlists they could do all these things that make it much more fluid and liquid um and manipulable and fungible and um and that was the great attraction for people the fact that it was doesn't cost anything was sort of a, a bonus that wasn't the main event and that all the other things that you mentioned about this aspect of podcasts of getting them on demand the shift from owning things to having access to things if you have instant um, access uh, anytime anywhere in the world um, that's part of the shift the the, the shift um, away from things that are static and um, monumental to things that are incomplete and always in the process. This, the movement from centralized to decentralized is also made possible when you have things in real time. You know, when you're in a world of like the Roman era when you uh, was very little information flows, the best way to organize an army was to have people give a command at the top and everybody below would, would follow it because the commander had the most information. 
but in a world in which information flows liquidly and pervasively everywhere, then a decentralized system is much more powerful uh, because you can actually um, have the edges and steer as well as the center, and the center becomes less important. Uh, and so all these things are, are feeding into it. And your example of, of the podcast is just a perfect example where all these trends in general conspire to make this a new genre. And I would say in the future, we would continue to remix the elements inside a podcast and that we would, you know, have um, podcasts within VR that will have um, podcasts, as you said, that are searchable and have AI um, remix portions of it, or that we would, you know, begin to do all the things that we've done with text and annotations and footnoting would be brought to this as well. So if, if you just imagine what we've done with podcasts and now multiply that by every other medium from GIFs to YouTube, um, we're, we're entering into an era where we're going to have um, entirely brand new genres of art, expression, and media. And we're just, again, at the beginning of this process. What do you think about the, the new capacity to fake media? So now I think you, you must have seen this. I think it was a TED Talk initially where I saw it, but it's been unveiled in various formats now where they can fake audio so well that given the sample that we've just given them, they could someone could produce a fake conversation between us where we said all manner of reputation-destroying things. And it wouldn't be us, but it would be... I think by current technology, undetectable as a fraud. And I think there, there are now video versions of this where you can get someone's mouth to move in the appropriate way so it looks like they're delivering the fake audio, although the facial display is not totally convincing yet, but presumably it will be at some point. What do you think about that? There's, I've, I've, in a hand-waving way, not really knowing what I'm talking about, I've imagined there must be some blockchain-based way <laughs> of ensuring against that. But uh, where are we going with that? So, so um, in, I don't know, 1984 or something, I did a cover story for the whole Earth Review of CQ, I think it was called at the time. Um, it was called Photography as the End of Evidence for Anything. And we were, we used a very expensive um, Cytex machine. It was like multi-million dollar machine, which cost uh, tens of thousands of dollars an hour to basically what we would now call Photoshop. Right, this is the early Photoshop. So, the, the, you know, National Geographic and Time and Life magazine had access to things and they would do little retouching stuff. But we decided to Photoshop uh, flying saucers ar arriving in San Francisco. And um, the point of this article was that, okay, this was the beginning of using photography as the evidence of anything. And what I kind of uh, concluded back then was that the only, well, there's two things. One was um, the primary evidence of believability was simply going to be the reputation of the source. So for most people, you wouldn't be able to tell. And that, that we already have that thing with text, all right? I mean, it's like words, you know, you could quote somebody, you can say, put some words and say, Sam Harris says this, and it would look just like yes, it was it's really. been done. Yeah. Exactly. So how would you know? Well, the only way you could know was basically you have to trust the, the, the source. And the same thing was going to happen with 
photography and now it'll be with video and audio. And so they're coming up to the place where text is, which is basically you can only rely on the source. The second thing we discovered from this was that, and this will also kind of apply to this question of like when you have AI and agents, how would you be able to tell if they're human or not? And, and, and the thing is, is that for most cases, like in a movie right now, you can't tell whether something has been CGI, whether it's real actor or not. We're, we, we've already left that behind. And, but we don't care in a certain sense. And, and when we call up on a phone and there's a robot, an agent there and we're trying to do a service problem, in some ways we don't really care whether it's a human or not, if they're giving us good service. But in the cases where we do care, there will always be ways to tell, and they may cost money. There's forensic ways to, to really come decide whether this photograph has been doctored, whether um, a CGI has actually been used to, to make a, a frame, whether this audio file has been altered. There, there will always be some way if you really, really care. But in most cases, we won't care. And we will just have to rely on the reputation of, of the source. And so um, I think we're going to kind of get to, this, to the place where text is already, which is the same thing. If, if someone's making it up, then you have no way to tell by looking at the text. You have to go back to, to the source. But that doesn't address the issue of fake news. And for, for, for there, I think what we're going to see is a, like a truth signaling layer added on somewhat maybe using AI, but mostly to devise what I would think is going to be kind of like a, a probability index to a statement that would be made in a networked way rather than, it'll, it'll involve Wikipedia and Snopes and in places, you know, maybe other academics, but it'll be like page rank, meaning that you'll have a statement, you know, um, London is the capital of England. There'll be like, that's that statement it has a 95% probability or 98% probability of being true. And then other statements will have a 50% probability of being true, and others will have a 10% probability. And that will come out of a networked analysis of these, these sites or these, you know, the Encyclopedia Britannica or whatever says so. So these other sources have a high reliability because in the past they have been true. And this, this, this network of, of uh, corresponding sources which are ranked themselves by other sources in terms of their reliability will generate some index number to a statement and as the statements get more complex that's a becomes a more difficult job to do and that's where the ai could become involved in trying to detect a pattern out of um, all these sources and so um, you'll get a probability score of, of this statement is likely truthfulness. It's kind of like a prediction market for epistemology. Yes. Yeah, that's interesting. So in, in light of what's happening and, and the trends you discuss in, in The Inevitable, if you had a child going to college next year, what would you hope that he or she study and, or ignore in light of what opportunities will soon exist? One of the things I talk about in the book is this idea that we're all in, going to be perpetual newbies, no matter whether we're 60 or 16 or, or 6, that um, we're feeling very good that we've mastered you know, smartphones and we know laptops, but the gestures and how things work, this kind of literacy. But you know, in five years from now, there'll be 
a new platform, virtual reality, whatever it might be. And we'll have to learn another set of gestures and commands and logic. And so the, the digital natives right now are, have a pass because they uh, are, are dealing with technology that was invented um, after they were born. But, but eventually, um, they're going to have to learn new things, too. And they're going to be in the same position as the old folks of having to learn these things. They're going to be newbies again, too. So we're all going to be perpetual newbies. And I think the really only literacy or skill that should be taught in schools is so that when you graduate, you have learned how to learn. So learning how to learn is is the the the, the meta skill that you want to have. And really, I think the only one that makes any difference because whatever language you're going to learn is not necessarily going to be the one that you are going to get paid for. Knowledge, if you want an answer, you ask a machine. So I, I, I think this idea of, of learning how to learn is the real skill that you should graduate with. And for extra bonus, for, for, for the ultimate golden pass, if you can learn how you learn best yourself, if you can optimize your own style of learning, that's the superpower that you want. That, I think, almost takes a lifetime to get to. And some people like Tim Ferriss are, are much better at dissecting how they learn and understanding how they can optimize their self-learning. But if you can get to that state where you have really, under, really understand how you personally learn best, then, then you're golden. And I think that's what we want to aim for, is that every person on the planet today will learn how to learn and will optimize how they learn best. And that I think is what schools should really be aiming for. Yeah, I was gonna say our, our mutual friend, Tim, seems well poised to take advantage of the future. I'm just gonna have to keep track of him. Let's talk about AI. I, I wanna, I'll set this up by just how this, this podcast got initiated because though I, I, I long knew that I wanted you on the podcast, you recently sent me an email after hearing my podcast on robot ethics with Kate Darling. And in that email, you, you sketched ways where you think you and I disagree about the implications and, and safety concerns of AI. You were also reacting to my TED Talk on the topic and also a panel discussion that you saw where I was on stage with, with Max Tegmark and Elon Musk and Jan Talon and, and other people who were at this conference on, on AI at Asilomar earlier this year. And you, you wrote in the setup to this email, and now I'm quoting you, there are at least five assumptions the super AI crowd hold that I can't find any evidence to support. In contradistinction to this orthodoxy, I find the following five heresies to have more evidence. One, intelligence is not a single dimension, so, quote, smarter than humans is a meaningless concept. Two, humans do not have general-purpose minds, and neither will AIs. Three, emulation of human thinking will be constrained by cost. Four, dimensions of intelligence are not infinite. And five, intelligences are, are only one factor in progress. Now, I think these are all interesting claims, and, and I think I agree with several of them, but most of them don't actually touch what concerns me about AI. So I think we should talk about all of these claims because I think they get at interesting points. But I think I should probably start by just summarizing what my main concern is about AI so we can, as we talk about your points, we can also 
just make sure we're we're hitting that. And you know, you when you talk about AI and when you talk about this one trend in your book, perhaps the most relevant, cognifying, you know, essentially putting intelligence into everything that can be made intelligent, you can sound very utopian and I can sound very dystopian in in how I talk about it. So but I actually think we we overlap a fair amount. I guess my main concern can be summarized under the the heading of the alignment problem, which is now kind of a phrase of jargon among those of us who are are worried about AI gone wrong. And there are really two concerns here with AI, and and, and I think they're concerns that, that are visited on any powerful technology. And the first is just the obvious case of people using it intentionally in ways that cause great harm. So it's just the kind of the bad people problem. And that's that's obviously a real problem. It's a problem that probably never goes away, but it's not the interesting problem here. I think that the, the interesting problem is the unintended consequences problem. So it's the situation where even good people with the best of intentions can wind up committing great harms because the technology is such that it's not, it won't reliably conform to the best intentions of good people. So for, for a powerful technology to be safe or, you know, or, or to be operating within our risk tolerance, it has to be the sort of thing that good people can reliably do good things with it rather than accidentally end civilization or, or do something else that's terrible. And for, the, for this to happen with AI, it's going to have to be aligned with our values. And so, again, this is often called the, the alignment problem. When you have autonomous systems working in ways, and increasingly powerful systems, and ultimately systems that are more powerful than any human being and even any collection of human beings, you need to solve this, this alignment problem. But at this point, people who haven't thought about this very much get confused, or, or, or at least they wonder, you know, why on earth would an AI however powerful, fail to be aligned with our values. Because after, after all, we, we built these things, or we will build these things. And they imagine a kind of silly Terminator-style scenario where just you know, robot armies start attacking us because for some reason they have started to hate us and, and want to kill us. And that, that really isn't the issue that, that even the most dystopian people are, are thinking about. And it's not, it's not the issue I'm thinking about. It's, it's, it's not that our machines will become spontaneously malevolent and, and want to kill us. The issue is that they, they can become so competent at meeting their goals that if their goals aren't perfectly aligned with our own, then the unintended consequences could be so large as to be catastrophic. And, and there, are, there are cartoon versions of this, as you know, which more clearly dissect the fear. I mean, they're, they're as cartoonish as the Terminator-style scenarios, but they're they're different. I mean, something like Nick Bostrom's paperclip maximizer. To review, I think many people are familiar with this, but so Nick Bostrom imagines a machine whose only goal is to maximize the number of paperclips in the universe, but it's a super powerful, super competent, super intelligent machine. And given this goal, it could quickly just decide that, you know, every atom accessible, including the atoms in your own body, are, are best suited to be turned into paperclips. And, you know, obviously we wouldn't build precisely that machine, but the point of, of that kind of thought experiment is to point out that these machines, even super intelligent machines, will not be like us, and they'll lack 
common sense, or they'll, or they'll only have the common sense that we understand how to build into them. And so the bad things that they might do might be very counterintuitive to us and therefore totally surprising. And just you know, kind of the final point I'll make to set this up, I think we're misled by the concept of intelligence. Because when we talk about intelligence, we assume that it includes things like common sense. In the space of this concept, we insert something fairly anthropomorphic and, and, and familiar to us. But I think intelligence is more like competence or effectiveness, which is just an ability to meet goals in an environment or in, across a range of environments. And given a certain specification of goals, even a superhumanly competent machine or system of machines might behave in ways that would strike us as completely absurd, and yet we, we will not have closed the door to those absurdities, however dangerous, if we don't anticipate them in advance or, or, or figure out some generic way to, to solve this alignment problem. So I think a good place to start is where we agree. And um, I think where we, the first thing I, I think we both agree on is, is that we have a very poor understanding of what our own intelligence is as humans. Um, and I would um, make a further statement that I think the common conception that we have of IQ is a very misleading notion of intelligence in humans, that, that we can kind of rank intelligences in a relative scale, a single dimension of, you know, and this is the, taken from Nick Bostrom's own book, that, you know, you have a, a single dimension and you have a, the, the intelligence of a mouse, say, or the IQ of a mouse, and then a rat's a little bit more, and then a chimpanzee's a little bit more, and then you have the kind of a really dumb human, an average human, and then a super genius like Albert Einstein. And then there's the, the super AI, which is kind of off the charts in terms of the, how much smarter along this IQ it can be. And that, I think, is a very, very misleading idea of what intelligence is. It's obviously the human intelligence is um, a suite, a symphony, a portfolio of dozens, 20 maybe, who knows how many different modes or nodes of, of thinking. There's perception, there's symbolic reasoning, there's a deductive reasoning, inductive reasoning, and emotional intelligence, spatial navigation, long-term memory, short-term memory. There's, 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 there's many, many different nodes of thinking and of course, that complex varies person by person. And um, when we get into the animal kingdom, we have a different mixture of, of these. And most of them are maybe simpler complexes. Uh, but in some cases, um, they're a, a particular node that we might have may actually be higher in, um, maybe superior in, in, in an animal in terms of... Uh, I mean, if you've seen some of these... Um, the chimpanzee, yeah. Chimpanzees, yeah. remembering the locations of numbers, just like, oh my gosh, obviously, it's like we're just, they're, 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 they're smarter than us in sort of in that dimension. We should just describe that so that people are aware of what, because they should find that video online. What it is, is a chimpanzee has a screen and there's a series of, of uh, numbers in sequence or numbers that appear in different positions on the screen very, very briefly. It's like a checkerboard that suddenly illuminates with, let's say, 10 different digits, and you have to uh, select all the digits in order and select all the, you know, the, you have to hit the right squares, then the numbers then disappear, and then you just have a blank checkerboard. 
Right. And you have to remember, you, you see, it sees it for like a, a split second and you have to remember where they are and you have to um, go back and hit the locations in order. And no human can, can do this, but this, for some reason, chimps seem to be able to do this very easily. So, so they have some kind of a, a short-term memory or a long-term memory. I'm not sure what kind of memory, a spatial memory that, does, that, that really um, would amaze us and, and we would find superhuman. And so, um, so I think we both agree that, that, that the human intelligence is very complex. And, and um, my suggestion about thinking about AI is, 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 is to always to use plural, to, to try to talk about AIs, because I think as we make these synthetic types of minds, we're going to make thousands of different species of them with different combinations of these primitive, these kind of primitive uh, modes of thinking. And that what we think of ourselves, our own minds, we think of our, our that, that we think of kind of as, as a singular intelligence. It's very much like this: the illusion of us having an eye or, or being center. There's an illusion that we have a kind of a unified, universal intelligence. But in fact, we have a we've evolved a very, very specific um, combination of elements in, in thinking that are, are not really general purpose at all they're, 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 they've they've it's a very specific purpose to survive on this planet and in, in, in this regime of, of biology when we compare our intelligence to the space of possible intelligences we're going to see that we're not at the center of some universal but we're actually at the edge like we are in the real galaxies of 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 possible minds and what we're doing with AI is actually going to make a whole zoo of possible ways of thinking, including inventing some ways of thinking that don't exist in biology at all today, just as we did with flying. So, so, so when the way we made uh, artificial flying is we looked at natural flight and mostly birds and bees and bats is, is flapping wings. And we tried to, to, to artificially fly by flapping wings. It just didn't work. The way we made artificial flying is we invented a type of flight that does not exist in nature at all, which was a fixed wing and a propeller. And we are going to do the same thing of, of inventing ways of thinking that cannot really occur in biology, bio, biological tissue that will be different, a different way of thinking. And um, we'll combine those into maybe many, many new complexes of, of, of types of, of thinking to do um, and achieve different different things. And there may be uh, problems that are so difficult in science or business that human-type thinking alone cannot reach, that we will have to work with a two-step process of inventing a different kind of thinking that we can then together work to solve some of these problems. So I think just like there's a kind of a misconception in thinking that humans are sort of on this ladder of evolution where we are superior to the animals that are below us. In reality, the way evolution works is that it kind of radiates out from a common ancestor of 3.7 billion years ago. We're all equally evolved. And you, the way, the proper way to think about it is like, are we superior to the uh, to the starfish, to the giraffe? They have all enjoyed the same amount of evolution as we have. The proper way to kind of map this is to 
Mephistus in the possibility space and saying, these creatures excel in this niche and these creatures excel in this niche and they weren't really superior to us in, in, in that way. It's even hard to determine whether they're more complicated than us or more complex. So I th think a better vision of AIs is to have a possibility space of all the different possible ways you can think. And some of these complexes will be greater than what humans are, but we can't have a complex of, of intelligence that maximize everything. That's just the engineering principle. The engineering maximizes you cannot optimize all everything you want to do. You're always bound by, by resources and time. So you have to make trade-offs. And if you want to have a Swiss Army knife version of intelligence that has all the different things, then they're going to be kind of mediocre in all the things that they do. Um, you can always excel in another version, another dimension, by just specializing in that particular node of, of thinking and thought. And so um, this idea that we're going to make this super version of human intelligence that somehow excels us in every dimension, I think is, I don't see any evidence for that. Let me try to map what you just said onto the way I think about it, because I, I agree with most of what you said. I think the last bit <laughs> I don't agree with, but I, I certainly, and, I, and I, I come to a different conclusion or I have a different at least I have a very vivid concern that survives contact with all the things you just said. I, I certainly agree that IQ does not map on to the way we think about the intelligence of other species. To ask, you know, what is the IQ of an octopus doesn't make any sense. And it's fine to think about human intelligence not as a, a single factor, but as, as a constellation of things that we care about. And our, our notion of intelligence could be fairly elastic that we could suddenly care about other things that that we haven't cared about very much and we would want to wrap that up in in terms of assessing a person's intelligence you mentioned emotional intelligence for instance i think that's a a discrete capacity that that you know doesn't segregate very reliably with something like mathematical intelligence say and you know it, it's fine to talk about it i think there are reasons why you might want to test it separately from IQ, and, and I, I think the notion of general intelligence as measured by IQ is, is more useful than, than many people let on. But I definitely take your point that we're this constellation of cognitive capacities. So putting us on a spectrum with a, with a chicken, you know, as I did in, in my TED Talk, is more or less just saying that you can issue certain caveats, which, which I didn't issue in that talk, but issuing those caveats still makes this a valid comparison, which is that of the things we care about in cognition, of the things that make us able to do the extraordinarily heavy lifting and unique things we do, like, you know, building a global civilization and producing science and art and mathematics and music and everything else that is making human life both beautiful and durable, there are, there are not that many different capacities that we need to enumerate in order to capture those abilities. It may be 10, it's not a thousand. And a chicken has very few of them. Uh, now a chicken may be good at other things that we can't even imagine being good at, but 
for the purposes of this conversation, we don't care about those things. And those things are clearly not leading to chicken civilization and chicken science and the chicken version of the internet. So of the things we care about in cognition, and again, I think the list is, is small, and it's, it's possible that there are things on the list that we really do care about that we haven't discovered yet. Take something like emotional intelligence. Let's say that we, we roll back the clock, you know, 50 years or so, and there's very few people thinking about anything like emotional intelligence, and then put us in the presence of, you know, very powerful artificial intelligent technology, and we don't even think to build emotional intelligence into our systems. It's clearly possible that we could leave out something that is important to us just because we haven't conceptualized it. But of the things we know that are important, there's not that many of them that lead us to be able to you know, prove mathematical theorems or, or invent scientific hypotheses or propose experiments. You know, and then if you add things like even emotional intelligence, I mean, the ability to detect the emotions of other people in their tone of voice and in their facial expressions, say. These are fairly discrete skills. And here's where I begin to edge into potentially dystopian territory. Once the ground is conquered in artificial systems, it never becomes unconquered. Really, the preeminent example here is something like chess, right? So for the longest time, chess playing computers were not as good as the best people. And then suddenly they were as, you know, more or less as good as the best people. And then, you know, more or less 15 minutes later, they were better than the best people. And now they will always be better than the best people. And we're, I think we're living in this bit of a mirage now where you have human computer teams, you know, cyborg teams, you know, much celebrated by people like Gary Kasparov, who, who's been on the podcast talking about them, which are for the moment better than the best computer. So, the, you know, having the ape still in the system gives you some improvement over the best computer, but ultimately the ape will just be adding noise, or, or so I would predict. And once computers are better at chess and better than any human-computer combination, that will always be true, but for the fact that we might merge with computers and, and, and cease to be merely human. And when you imagine that happening to every other thing we care about, in the mode of cognition, then you, you have to imagine building systems that escape us in their capacities. They could be highly alien in terms of what, they, what we have left out in building them, right? So again, if, we've, if we had forgotten to build in emotional intelligence or we didn't understand emotional intelligence enough to build everything in that humans do, we could find ourselves in the presence of you know, say the most powerful autistic system, you know, the, the, the universe has ever devised, right? So we've left something out and it's only kind of quasi familiar to us as a mind, but, you know, godlike in its capacities. I think it's just the, the fact that once the ground gets conquered in an artificial system, it stays conquered. And by definition, you know, the, the resource concerns that you mentioned at the end, you know, if you build a Swiss army knife, it's not going to be a great sword, and it certainly isn't going to be a great airplane. Well, then I just think that doesn't actually describe what will happen here, because when you compare the resources that a superhuman intelligence will have, especially if it's linked to the internet, you compare that to a, a human brain or any collection of human brains, 
I don't know how many orders of magnitude difference that is, and and in terms of the the time frame of operation. I mean, you're, you're talking about systems operating a billion times faster than a human brain. There's no reasonable comparison to be made there, and that's where I feel like the possibility of something like the singularity or something like an intelligent explosion is there and 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 worth worrying about. So again, I'd like to go where where we agree. So so you you use the term alien intelligence and in, or in, like an alien, and I think that's actually the best. I think there's two really good metaphors to kind of apply to these AI zoo primarily. One is to think of them as alien intelligences, and um, I often like to think of them as artificial aliens because I think a lot of the effects that we would have if we actually had contact with a ET and a you know from another galaxy we're going to get by making artificial aliens on this planet and and you know Stuart Russell's point there which which I made in 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 my TED talk quoting him which I think brings this vividly to bear if you're someone who's who's worried as I am is like because the way we're behaving now should be the way we would behave if we got a message from an alien civilization saying you know hello humanity will arrive in on your humble planet in 50 years, get ready, right? So it's like, well, we, we, we know we're going to make contact. Right, exactly. And that, that sharpens the, the attention in a way that just hearing about the next release from Apple simply doesn't capture your attention. Right. So, so, so we do agree on, on that, that, it, that it's kind of culturally equivalent to contact with an alien civilization, that the fact that they're contacting us means that they're very advanced and. Um, advanced certainly in ways that we aren't um that's as you said once the ground is conquered it doesn't retreat so whether or not we can ma- imagine again i i think the idea of kind of a super humanness is is a misguided idea but certainly there's going to be a, a, a very powerful alien intelligences and they'll be alien and and, and they'll be powerful in ways that we may not be at all um, which can be as disarming as being powerful in ways that we are. In ways that we aren't, it can actually even be more disconcerting. And I think the thing about the alien intelligence metaphor is that um, we are certainly not going to understand a lot of it. And this is another aspect of AI, is that a lot of the AI that's already happening um, in neural nets, which is the favored way to do this now, is impenetrable to us, and they're making they the these systems make decisions that affect us, but we don't really have very good access to even understanding how these decisions are made. And one of the current funding programs of DARPA is to do something called explainable AI. You know, can the AI explain itself? And the main way that that's being done is you kind of put another layer of AI on it to try to extract out the intermediate layers to, 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 to present a, a kind of a reason that we would understand of how they making, how it's making these decisions. And that's almost kind of the beginning of a consciousness in a certain sense of this uh, self-monitoring loop. I, I just want to give a current example of this in, in, you know, it's comparatively quite trivial to the kinds of things we will be encountering in the future. But, but this, is, this is already happening in very narrow AI system. So there was, it was recently in the news, probably about a year ago, that a kind of a black box system of the sort you just described, where, you know, people don't really, haven't coded it with an algorithm that they understand. They're just, it's just a machine learning 
routine that's being performed on data and it's producing a reliable output. They had one deciding who should get paroled from prison, and it was simply trying to minimize the recidivism rate. We don't want people reoffending, so let's you know dial that variable down as much as we can and not let the wrong people out. But it was then discovered that it was using race. You know, it found race as a re- relevant variable, and so we had, had an AI that was basically a racist AI implementing a, a race-based testing of who should be let out of prison. There was no way to know that until we discovered that. And you could imagine a thousand things like that where we, we have a system that is trained on some function, and unless it's inspectable by us, we don't necessarily know what, what variables it's taken into account. So, so, so I do uh, uh, agree that um, this unknowability of, of um, AI is, is, a, is, a, is, is a huge, huge concern. So we have in the realm of scientific proofs, we have um, AIs doing mathematical proofs and they, they have a, up to a million steps in the proof, which simply there, there's no human or even team of humans that can load that into their minds to, to verify it. And we have to kind of either accept this AI's proof or not based on, you know, previous evidence about whether it was logically, um, whether, whether the smaller models that it worked on were also um, accepted as true. And, and, and that's just the beginning. So we can have, you know, we will have decisions being made by these alien intelligences that um, are going to be very hard for us to, to evaluate. And kind of like going back to the fake news thing, we kind of have to uh, accept them on their past uh, behaviors uh, about whether, in, whether they've been right about other things and 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 that we do accept, and so um, that can certainly become a problem as more of our lives would revolve around kind of decisions that they're making, um, and setting aside the whole idea of them kind of running out of control. That alone is 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 a is a concern to um, that that you don't need to even get to the singularity to ha- to be concerned about that. Is what I'm saying. And so um, my general take uh, is uh, I'm very technocentric. And so I think that almost all the problems we have today have been generated by technologies in the past. And I suspect that most of the problems in the future will be made from technologies of today. But I differ from most technological critics because I think that the solution to the problems made by technology is not to ratchet back the technology to stop it you know, turn it down, get rid of it, stop it. It's actually to have more and better technology. Yeah, well, that, that is one area where we agree, too. And, of course, that those solutions, those technological solutions themselves would generate whole new problems that we've never seen before, but that the solution to those problems is actually more and better technology. And that what you get out of this kind of ever going cycle is actually more choices and possibilities and so we and which we crave and which is actually the source of everything that we hold value is it's, it's increased freedoms it's it's increased options and opportunities and possibilities and so 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 that that in some senses i think progress is propelled by problems it's um 
it's so so I am optimistic enough about these concerns about understanding um, AI that I think we will make um, we will basically have layers of we'll have AI tools to help us understand AI and. I think you're concerned about, well, is there the possibility of having this kind of runaway thing? Because we're dealing with powers that, that are very large, that, can, that could accelerate quickly. So how do we prevent it from running away from us and you know, making a million paper clips out of everything? And um, I, I, think, I think it's a legitimate concern and I, I just wanted to divorce it from this idea of the singularity because I, because I think the singularity in some ways is a very distracting um, metaf- myth because I, because, because I think that possibility is possible, but unlikely. And that you actually don't even need that to, to be concerned about things and that we can have, we can be concerned about the things that are much more likely to happen. Yeah. Well, I haven't been a fan of the, the boosterism I've I've heard about the singularity. I mean, so like the the way Ray Kurzweil tends to speak about it is not something I have spent a lot of time agreeing with. I think for me, the singularity simply means the point past which we can't actually form a reliable intuition about what you you know what will be happening, and the intelligence explosion version of it suggests that. There's a kind of runaway effect. Once this technology begins improving itself, well, then it, it's gotten out of our hands, and then who knows what could happen. But I, yeah, I think there are, there are interesting ways to think about it getting away from us, or or, or the or it being you know not value aligned with us, that are not necessarily dependent on anything exponential happening. There's actually actually one analogy that I heard from Nate Sores. So he works with. Eliezer Yudkowsky at the Machine Intelligence Research Institute, and they're both, you know, they they're sort of both on the on the pessimistic end or the worried end of this continuum, and have been very influential in how I've thought about this, along with people like Stuart Russell and Nick Bostrom. So Nate gave a talk at Google, which people can watch; it's online, about the problem of value alignment. And one analogy he gave there struck me as fairly useful to think about. So when you when you think about evolution which built our brains, and our brains are the basis of everything we think and do creatively and intellectually. But evolution built our brains purely on the basis of basically a single value function, which is just Darwinian selection and and genetic fitness. The only part of what we have been doing that, that evolution could see was just the sheer fact of getting our genes into the next generation. You know, anything that would do that has gotten selected for. And it's on the basis of that, so just imagine, you know, in this case, evolution has programmed us, you know, to be aligned with that utility function. Just get those genes into the next generation. And brains became part of that because brains were effective at getting our genes into the next generation. And it's on the basis of of that that every other goal and value that we have developed has come into existence. And many of these goals and values have nothing to do with getting our genes into the next generation. In fact, some of them are, are antithetical to that core value. So there are people, you know, most people use birth control for much of their lives. I mean, many people decide to not have kids. There's stark antagonism to the, to the value of evolution there. But then there's just other things that are 
totally orthogonal to what evolution cares about. So mathematics and music and you know, everything we're talking about now, podcasts, this is not merely about the propagation of genes. And it has been fit closely enough with, with that which was merely about the propagation of genes that it is what we have to play with now. And yet, you know, we could make decisions tomorrow that would eradicate not only ourselves, but every other species on Earth and make a mockery of this whole evolutionary program. So, I mean, so the analogy here is fairly obvious. We could build super intelligent machines aligned with a set of values and code that we can foresee as being important. And yet there may emerge in these minds layers where new goals and new and whole environments and whole worlds, just landscapes of mind are born that could be fundamentally surprising to us and could then turn back and subvert the very goals that we have, we thought we were aligning them to. And again, we have to imagine, people are imagining things like their computers or their calculators or their thermostats, and they're not imagining rich minds. We can leave consciousness aside because I think consciousness is, is a separate question here. I'm not, I'm not sure consciousness necessarily comes along for the ride when, once you build uh, human-level intelligence and beyond. But with or without consciousness, we're talking about landscapes of mind which can be fundamentally creative and, and, and bring in new goals and new, new values and new variables that we can't foresee. And, that's, and again, that's something that I think is possible regardless of how fast it happens. Right. And, and, and again, I think I would agree with that. Again, if, if you adopt this sort of framework of, um, of alien intelligences, there, there certainly could, uh, we could inadvertently or even deliberately invent uh, intelligences that would have um, great variety of, of motivations. And, um, uh, you know, we've already started to program pain into these systems because pain is a very useful thing. I mean, the reason why we have pain and animals have feel pain is to protect an injury, right? So, so they're injured in some ways and they have a signal which is very overwhelming in the system saying, don't it's injured, don't use this, stop, uh, address this. And um, it's, and, and so we, we are going to put in, uh, where I think we may be surprised by how, how much emotion we'll have in these, these systems and maybe even how much emotional bond we'll have with them because it's useful, because it's actually um, very, very, very useful to, to put in these kinds of complex uh, values, emotions, ethics in, into our systems. And I think that um, what we uh, want to do with with these is um, to uh, imagine ways that we kind of, um, going back to the alignment problem, we want them to align, at least right now, with our current ideas of, of what our values are. And actually, I think it's not so hard to program those kind of values into them and maybe even have them replicate. But I think the real challenge for us right now is that our, our, our human ethics are very shallow, very inconsistent, uh, not very robust, um, and that we don't even have a consensus about what they are. And, and we've kind of discovering that as we try and program them in, into these systems. And so the real challenge for us, I think, is actually 
deepening our own values and sense of morality and ethics as we you know attempt to to kind of pass them on or implement them or embed them and i think ultimately what happens is that ours will change as we try and put them into the systems that we will actually get better at them that we will deepen them that we will um make them more consistent more logical more 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 robust and that we will become better from it and so um i, I so uh, so so i'm not as pessimistic maybe uh, as you are about putting these values into or even having to deal with the alien ones is is that i i don't i i think this is going to be an ongoing process and we will um it may, it may not happen as fast as the singularities imagine happening overnight i i think that um as we make these things, we will realize, oh, you know, we we need to get better at this. We need to have a better idea. This is an alien mind. Um, what is what is the values there? Can we learn something from that? Uh, are there problems? And you know, do we want to have a single consensus on humans? Maybe there's diversity that we're going to endorse, uh, and you know, maybe there's different systems for different people. These are the kind of questions before us. So I'm I'm generally optimistic because i think that we don't know the answers to this but that we're actually going to become better by having to go through this process yeah well and i i think i think it's pretty obvious at this point that we're not going to be able to code the totality of what matters to us into our machines before we switch them on so i, I think we need to build machines and here i'm i'm basically paraphrasing stuart russell who's working on this very problem. We need, we need to build machines that, whose goal is to learn what we want. And, and perhaps, I mean, that's their primary value. And they're always worried that they could be wrong about this. So they're constantly trying to better approximate what our values are, as opposed to, you know, implementing the, the value we programmed in and, and as though that's going to be good for all time. So I think, I think we need machines that are above all, corrigible. They'll take correction from us. They'll want to hear when we say, you know, that's not what I meant or stop. And I mean, this is in tension with some other values that they could spontaneously form because any goal that a machine has, it could form an instrumental goal to resist being turned off, say, right? I mean, because turning it off is antithetical to any other goal that it has. So we need machines that will, will submit to being switched off even when they become superhumanly powerful and could otherwise prevent it. I'm not pessimistic that that's solvable. That sounds like it could be solvable, provided one found the kind of master heuristic which gave the machine, no matter how powerful, the primary value of more fully conforming to what, what we want in each moment. One of the things you were saying reminded me of, of the distinction of having a kids that you, you want to have kids that are um, not listening to what you're preaching to them, but actually are absorbing your values from what you do. It's kind of like, is that what you're saying? It's like, instead of having systems or AIs that, um, that are relying us to tell us, tell them what their values are, they're going to actually, um, take our values from what our values actually are. And then I think you really have to worry about what sort of company they keep at that point. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Yeah, right, right. I mean, um, but but uh, was that what you were saying? Was was that the idea was that you have? Well, of course, you want to have a teachable system in whatever you do. But the question is, is whether um, 
you want to be able to tell them or have them um, look at actually what our values are? Well, well, I think it would be both. I mean, if you imagine living with a robot that was superhuman in, in many respects and was doing whatever work you could assign it, you essentially want it to be a a perfectly content slave, right? I mean, you and the, this is where this is where the ethics of of consciousness come in. I mean, if, if this thing is conscious, well, then you have the further concern of you know, is it ethical to build something that is smarter than you, more competent than you, maybe even more creative than you, but because of how it's built, it's content to be enslaved by you for the rest of its life. That begins to get interesting. But if you leave consciousness aside, so there's nothing that it's like to be these machines, yet they become super intelligent and super effective. I think you want machines that, with respect to their values, their master value is to conform to whatever your master value is or seems to be. And so I think I would, I would want to privilege the communication. I would want to be able to say, stop, or that's not what I meant, and have that be immediately effective. Right, you don't want to have to get into a negotiation with this this AI where it says, "Well, listen, you say you want X, but I, I've been I've spent a lot of time with you of late, and I can see that you really want Y. So we're going to get Y, no matter what you say." You don't want to have to persuade this AI for very long when it has more power than you do, right? So you know, I mean, you say you love your kids, but you've been neglecting them, and uh, you know, so now I'm going to throw them out with with the trash. You know, you don't you don't want to have to get into a negotiation over that. But to your point, which is a an interesting one, I think this other component of having intelligent systems become kind of the ultimate mirrors of our minds for us. If your computer could really show you what you care about, what you're tending to do, and how that may not in fact be aligned with what you will ultimately want to have done, how do you live a life without regret? Well, I could imagine an intelligent system monitoring what you're doing with your attention, you know, moment by moment, in a way that could allow you to to live a much better life, in the sense of you know, you're spending each hour and each day in a way that retrospectively will seem as fulfilling as it could have possibly been. And you you mentioned in passing, you know, as you can tell, I'm very optimistic. But there there is one aspect of AI. There's more than one, but there's one particular one that I do worry about, and that is, um, if we if we take a slavery stance, if we take a slaveholder stance to AIs, whether or not they're slaves, does that corrupt us in some spiritual way? Um, that, that this this we haven't really talked about what is our relationship with these multiple pluralistic AIs. And if if they do have any degree of um, decision-making and freedom, yet we maintain a kind of like, you know, we, we get to unplug you, we get to ultimately decide whether you continue or not. Uh, and, you know, we basically, we, we are new work for me. I own you. Uh, does that, does that, is that corrosive for our our well-being? I think I mean, this is something I spoke about. I don't know if you heard my podcast with Paul Bloom when we were talking about Westworld. One thing I took away from Westworld and, and some of these other shows, I don't know if you saw Humans as well. I did, I did, yeah. The implication of making these things truly humanoid, right? We're now not talking about super intelligence on, online. We're talking about 
robots that look like people, but they have human-level intelligence or beyond. One implication there is that, that I think our, our intuitions, you know, our emotional and social intuitions will be so heavily played upon that whether or not these systems are conscious, we will feel that they are. And that will come with all of the ethical baggage that our dealing with other human beings does. There was a, a brilliant, it was a pretty uneven show, I thought, but there was this brilliant moment in humans where the husband, I mean, they get this new robot for the, the house and everyone's dealing with kind of the weirdness of, of having this truly humanoid and, and, you know, it's a beautiful Asian woman. So the husband and, and the son are both kind of noticing how attractive the robot is. And at one point, the husband has sex with the robot. He's, he's home alone with the robot and he switches on the robot's adult mode and has, has sex w- with her. And the rest of the family perceives this essentially as a rape of a slave, right? I mean, it's just like they're horrified by this. And you can see how they would perceive it that way because this robot is so human-like that the idea that you can just flip a switch on her and now she has to compliantly have sex with you, that's, again, attributing consciousness to the thing, I think, is the crucial variable. But we will do that helplessly, whether we know them to be conscious or not. And then Westworld gives you this you know, theme park, essentially, for psychopaths, where you have people raping and killing robots that are indistinguishable from humans and even indistinguishable from human children. And I think there's, there's no way we could do that. I think that would be corrupting of us and corrupting of our, our view of, of one another if, if we were able to find that to be entertaining. Yeah, and, and I think... That, that line about, you know, when is it just kind of like a, a sex doll? When is it rape? When, you know, this goes back to the rape in cyberspace uh, article from the 80s. Um, I don't think I've seen that. Is that something I should have read? Well, this, is, this is one of the classic, uh, one of the classic articles of the, of the digital era. It was written in, I don't know, maybe um, 89 or something. Julian DeBell wrote this thing called Rape in Cyberspace, and it was this uh, it was still in a text world. It was not even visual. It was, it was a text world, and there was a there was somebody who basically wrote out a, a, a rape of a character in this text world. It was called a moo, a multi. I can't remember what they stand for. Um, and the, the question was whether it counted as a rape or not. And and um, was it about the intentions? Was it about the description what where was that line and 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 that that those kinds of questions are going to be perennial because each time we have a new one of these there will be a very blurry line between um you know in our own minds about the synthetic and real uh, of course real things happen in synthetic worlds virtual communities are real communities in a virtual world and so uh we're going to kind of constantly rehearse this and in the context of, uh, you know, what does it mean to be a human and what are humans and is the avatar really us? Does it represent us? Does it, uh, uh, and, and then that's just the avatar in the virtual world, but we're going to have the same argument in um, the physical world with these other synthetic beings about to the extent that they, what is our relationship to them? Is it a real relationship? Of course it is. Can you have a real relationship with a synthetic thing? To what extent do the things that we normally encounter and involved in, is, is, is it a real love? Is it real emotion? 
And if you've seen the videos of the people kicking the Boston Dynamic dogs. Getting hate mail or death threats as a result. I know, because we all flinch because, of course, we're projecting. But, you know, if, if they did feel pain, as I said, they're already programming pain into them. They might actually be feeling pain. And does that count? And I, and I think, uh, you know, again, we don't have to go as far as a singularity to have a whole bunch of challenges to us in our identity. Uh, we're going to be coming one after another. And, and for me, I'm excited because I think uh, each one of these is forcing us to both define who we are as individuals and as a species and, and, and to redefine it. So, so we're, we're doing both at the same time. We're, we're, we're going to you know, try and find out who we are as we are changing who we are. And um, uh, I'm optimistic that this is a great opportunity because I, I think if we remove the singularity and this idea of we have this instant godlike rapture and, and think that, that actually, no, this is going to be unfolding in time, um, there'll be lots of moving parts, but that we actually have a chance to participate in this larger conversation about defining who we are as humans and redefining who we are, and that these technologies are going to allow us to do that, the biggest task that we have, and that we get a chance to kind of redefine ourselves in better ways. That's an opportunity. It's not an inevitability, but it's an opportunity. And that, um, you know, AIs and virtual AIs are going to be telescopes and microscopes that allow us for the first time to really examine ourselves and way beyond what we could do with experiments and, and, and human reflection. We're going to, these are actually the tools that we're going to use to delve into to find out who we are and then to, re, to redefine who we become. And, 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 and that this is like, this is, what's, this is what's on the plate. This is what's coming down the next, the next century is, is that we're going to be involved in, in, in finding out what humans are and then redefining who humans are. And so it's like, what better grand project could there be? Yeah, I share that sense. And, and as dystopian as some of my fears can sound, I don't think there's an alternative. I don't think there's a break. <laughs> there's no break we can pull here. I mean, we're right. we're going to build more and more intelligent machines unless something else catastrophic happens to prevent it. So I just think we we have to keep the safety concerns in view as much as we can as we, as yeah. we do this. And and, and I, I would say you know, you were talking about you know maybe putting aside the kind of singularity um, and 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 of course the important part of of that concept was the fact that. Um, it was this idea that there was there was a moment in which we were simply going to be blind to what came afterwards. And the analogy that I say is we, we've already been through one singularity, the, the most important one as humans, which was language. So pre-language, there was no, no way that any humanoid could imagine what life after language was like. Uh, and yet that what was interesting was that through that transition, um, there was no moment when kind of, you know, two cavemen are sitting around saying, hey, we're talking. We've got language. You know, did you realize what just happened? This was only something you could see kind of in retrospect. And so we're usually passes through singularities, usually not visible during that moment. And while I think the, the idea of this kind of rapture of this intelligence explosion is, is mythical, I think there is another version of a singularity, which is us getting to kind of a super global 
organism, a global superorganism where we're connecting, you know, 7 billion people all the time with 7 trillion machines and 7 million AIs, and that we have a planetary system of some sort that is simply going to be beyond our ability to imagine or even maybe even perceive for a while. And that, to me, is a much more probable um, kind of a singularity where it's just at a scale that is really outside of our, uh, of our experience um, and is already happening, is already beginning right now. Um, and so while I don't think, I don't see any evidence of an exponential growth in intelligence, I do see an exponential growth in this superorganism that's, that's already occurring. And if you look at it as a whole, um, it, is, it is real. And we can kind of actually describe it now in terms of specifications. And so there, this is another level that, that of complexity to this AIs is that there's plural AIs and then there's this network of all these things together and maybe some emergent kind of thought or intelligence at the, at the level of a superorganism that will be very, very difficult for us to appreciate apprehend, understand, and control. So again, for me, yeah, we can imagine all kinds of horrific scenarios where you have a global brain, but 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 I, I see this as as, you know, I mean, I think we should be cognizant of it. I, I don't think we should be worried about it, but there will be a, even more complications in terms of uh, uh, of ethics and morality when we have something at this scale because we're just unfamiliar with things at that scale and and it'll be full of surprises that um we're not ready for but i but i think that's that's also part of our destiny within uh, within a century well i think consciousness is the variable that makes this potentially very interesting slash scary ethically and our uncertainty about the the physical basis of consciousness could make this just truly bewildering and uncanny so if you just imagine take something like the shows we've recently watched humans or or westworld and so you're in the presence of humanoid robots that pass the turing test with flying colors so they seem like human or or better than human minds but until we, unless we understand exactly how consciousness is related to information processing or, or complex physical systems, we may actually not know whether we have built conscious minds. But we will, we will have built minds which could report on pain or claim they feel pain, but we, will, we actually will not know whether the lights are on, so we won't know that they're, whether they actually suffered, apart from whatever display of suffering we've programmed into them. And ethically, it's hugely important because if we have built machines that are, in fact, beings that can suffer and perhaps suffer more than we could possibly imagine, well, then we have, we have done something monstrous ethically. But if we've built machines for whom there is nothing that it's like to be, I mean, the, the, the lights are not on and being this robot is no different from being the computer I'm using to talk to you now, then any sense we have that these are objects of our moral concern is an illusion. I mean, it'd be like being the people you meet in dreams. You know, these are not, you feel like you're in relationship to people, 
But in fact, these people don't exist, right? And these people aren't suffering, no matter what they show you. I mean, we can, we can leave aside any, any sense of the, the dreams have a different ontology than that. But if we're uncertain about this and remain uncertain long enough so that we, we begin to grow up with these intelligent machines, I think we could lose sight of the, the problem, both ethically and intellectually. And then there's just something deranging about that. I mean, you asked, you know, is this a real relationship? And you said, yes. Well, but is it a real relationship if, you know, you are essentially dealing with a, a dream character built as a, an artificial intelligence? And there's nothing, there's nothing really looking back at you, even though it may be the most compelling mind you've, you've ever been in the presence of. I mean, we're, t- we're talking about something that may know everything you've ever written and said, you know, have instantaneous access to, to every thought you've ever put up into the cloud, and it's recorded everything you've said for the years it's been with you. It perceives your emotions better than your wife can, and it has, has run, you know, every relevant analysis comparing you to every other human alive based on their data online. And it is just as wise a being as you could ever imagine being in dialogue with. And yet, if the lights aren't on, this is, in some sense, a total illusion. Uh, I mean, you're in the Matrix with the other avatars actually not being real people. I don't know what to hope for here, but it's certainly weird. Yeah. So, so um, you've thought a lot more about consciousness, maybe, than, than most people, and certainly I have. But I have an assumption that maybe it's a little different. And my assumption is that consciousness is not binary, that it's a continuum and highly diverse with many subcomponents or variations. And that there would be like, you know, again, maybe uh, dozens or scores of different varieties and degrees of consciousness. And that um, what we'll do again, as we learn to make uh, it artificially, which I assume, Carla, I could be wrong, but so your assumption, just to be clear, is that consciousness will come along for the ride. The moment we start building sufficiently intelligent machines, it's not likely or even possible that we'll build them without being conscious. No, no, no. I'm saying that there is many, that, that as we eventually learn how consciousness arise and what it is that we'll find out that it's, that there's many varieties and gradations of it, and that in some machines, that, that, that again, it'll be it'll be kind of like a tool that that will put some degrees and some varieties into some machines, and other machines or other AIs we will want to have high degrees of consciousness, and then there may be even degrees of consciousness beyond us, and that um, it'll become you know some will sell uh, some AIs and advertise them as conscious free, and others will have well this this kind of a limited, this variety of consciousness here. Um, and that it'll be like, like varieties of, of intelligence and stuff, something that is very variable, very complicated, um, not a single thing that is there in a binary presence or not. And again, there might be varieties of consciousness that, that we find very alien and that we will use this as another tool or another trait, another way um and that there'll be a trade-off a price paid for it you know it's like if you if you're conscious then this is that so we'll put them in or we'll engineer them in in different ways and um for and then for if if we're making something that's very highly conscious and it's kind of this this perfect enlightened being then we'll probably treat that differently 
than if we have uh, something that's very, very intelligent without much consciousness. Let me just throw another example at you just to probe your ethical intuitions here. So imagine we could genetically engineer an animal like a, a chimpanzee to be far more intelligent than it is. So intelligent that it could sort of recognize the limitations of its circumstance, right? Essentially putting a human mind in a chimpanzee body. Would that be an ethical thing to do? Because we're sort of, I think we're sort of stumbling into a similar project. Right, right, right. Yeah, I mean, you're, you've complicated the equation because now we're going back to things that we consider natural and that have sort of some, I think we have an intuitive sense that they have, that there's certain... Um, or to even make it messier, but somehow even more relevant, what if we made a human-chimp hybrid? Yeah. Right, so now this is something that hasn't existed before. It's biological. It's presumably smarter than a chimp, but, you know, not as happy as a human. Seems like, I think most people's, once you get past the ick factor, I think most people feel that this could be a totally unethical thing to bring into the world. Right. So, as I said, I think we have a special case about messing with things that already exist that we don't necessarily apply to. Like, so if, if, if we were to make... Let's, let's make it more complicated. We were to gingerly engineer an entirely new species. It wasn't a, we weren't going to modify a chimp. We were going to make something that was like a brand new animal that didn't exist before, and we were going to make it a hybrid. I think we would be a little bit more permissive of that. We would per permit something that was kind of like a, it was a, you know, a new humanoid, let's say, that didn't exist in the past, that had some genes from... Neanderthal, it had some genes from the uh, monkey, it had some genes we made up and we made up something new. I think we there, even though if it had the same kind of place, maybe, in, in between this, we would be a lot more comfortable with that than altering, you know, a chimpanzee that exists as a species today. Right. But I, I guess the, the, what I'm picturing as the ethical concern here is that we're engineering some kind of confinement of a mind to a, a circumstance that's that can't possibly be fulfilling right so like we, if you, you build something that is inappropriately sentient for its its niche and then it suffers there so it's, you haven't necessarily enslaved it but you've you've stuck it somewhere where you wouldn't want to trade places with that with that being if you could and I mean, maybe this is just a very parochial concern because it, maybe it's not so great to be us, but but it still seems like something worth worrying about if, in fact, we are just proliferating conscious minds in in various systems. I mean, if if you say would the chimp eat, would the chimp chimpanzee rather be there? They might. A human might not want to be there, but a chimpanzee might be an upgrade for them. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I I think we don't know the answers to these and. Um, I think it'll be we're going to be a long time in coming to them, but I think uh, what we're going to do. I mean, for me, what what AI is doing is 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 the the vehicle again, the microscope, the telescope that is going to illuminate these things because we're going to make all these varieties of them, and we'll get to to see what happens. Um, we'll get to see whether you know whether you can, you know to the degree that you can have consciousness but not feel pain, or are those two linked, or can you have pain with not consciousness? And so, um, or, or suffering and not consciousness. So, so I think this is wide open, but um, 
uh, I don't think that it's going to happen overnight. And I think that we have enough time to actually learn from this and to, because we're going to be aware and we should be paying attention and we should really, really value these, these conversations about ethics and morality. And, and we should really give great emphasis to them as there are, you know, it's happening around the world right now. There are a lot of researchers, there's responsible robotics. If you want to to participate in this, join the Responsible Robotics Association, which is doing daily conversations about this, trying to do this in a deliberate, conscious way. And I think that's fantastic, and we can all participate in it. And, I, and so I am optimistic because of history, because we've been able to make the world a little bit better every year for at least a couple hundred years. And so I, I, what I don't want people to feel as if look, this is going to happen in a blink, and then it kind of like it's over, so we need to stop this from happening. No, no, no. This is going to happen over time, and we'll have many opportunities to become involved in trying to answer this. I, I think we shouldn't jump to premature conclusions about this. I, I think we should be evidence-based. We should look, we should make something, engage it, try it, use it, look at the evidence of what happens. Let's not be too um, guided by what we could imagine happening. Let's look at the evidence of actually what does happen. And, um, and to our own credit, I, I can't think of a single technology that we have rehearsed so much before it has come than AI. It's like, we didn't do that with plastic. We didn't do that with electricity. And so um, we are really spending a lot of time thinking about this before it's even happened, which I think is a real improvement in civilization. Yeah. I want to bring this back to more near-term concerns, which, <laughs> which, I, which I know you are also fairly optimistic about and, and, and many people are worried about, which is the issue of employment and unemployment, because this, this wave is breaking on us sooner rather than later. This is, we don't need to get anywhere near superhuman or even human-level AI to, to imagine a future where self-driving cars put 10 million people out of work almost overnight in the U.S. alone. And then you think of all the other jobs that will be displaced by intelligent machines. And once they're displaced, they will be permanently displaced. And many people, as you know, reason on the basis of, of past examples of you know, the move from agriculture into industry, you know, or the, you know, the buggy whip manufacturer finds something else to make once you know, the cars replace horses and buggies. But it seems to me that that analogy and every analogy like it breaks down and we will get into a future at some point where we have to anticipate some kind of massive unemployment where there's just no need for human drudgery. Certainly, there'll be no need for people to do boring and dangerous jobs anymore when we have machines that can do them. And then something, some other remedy like universal basic income needs to be talked about. So how, tell me how you think about that. And, and I know a lot of people want to know your opinion about UBI. So just, just in brief, I, I, I guess I, I, I have no doubt that there's you know, a, a massive shift in occupations and employment. I am not as certain that this is going to happen as rapidly as people imagine, overnight, ever you know, driver, truck drivers losing their jobs. Um, first of all, I think the the introduction of self-driving cars and trucks is going to happen over 
it's going to be a lot slower than maybe what people imagine because there and, and there's going to you know it's going to happen in stages and there's just lots of of difficulties to make these things work at scale that that uh, I don't think is going to happen overnight. That being said, I I imagine I, I I conceive of most jobs as bundles of tasks, and there are a lot of tasks that um, will go to the rob- robots and AIs. And so I would say basically anything that has is measured by productivity or as I- efficiency, where efficiency counts, those are the kind of jobs that go to the robots and the bots. But that actually is not. All, you know, there are some jobs that have a lot of that or most of it, and there are a lot of jobs that have some of it. So most jobs will be transformed and altered. But um, I think that what um, I think that we humans are really good at or is inventing new things that we want and desire. And um, in the very beginning, when we first invent them, um, they're very inefficient and we don't know what it is that we're doing and we're kind of making things up along. And so it takes some time. Um, but eventually, you know, parts of it will understand what we want done rote and we hand it off to the bots. So we'll, to me, there's this process, forever process of humans inventing jobs to give to the robots, but that our job is served to invent new jobs and that there's plenty of room for that and that we're actually pretty good at wasting time and being inefficient, which is the parts that we will be doing. Um, not that the robots can't be inefficient, but that we are very good at identifying the kind of inefficiencies that humans like because we are humans. And so it's like, like you know, I think robots and AIs are going to be very creative. I think creativity is a lot more mechanical than we think it is. We think creativity is very creative, but actually I think we can program in creativity even into robots and AIs. However, their creativity is alien. It's kind of like they're going to tell jokes, but they're, they're not going to be funny to us. It's like... You know, they, they can be creative, but they're creative in an alien way. And sometimes that's really good because it helps us think differently. And think different is really the engine of this new economy. But when we want a human joke, I think it's going to be a long time before a, a robot or a AI is going to tell a joke that we really find funny or on a regular basis. That really will be a, an important little moment when, when the funniest comic we've ever heard is a, an AI. That will spark some serious reflection on the human circumstance. Exactly. I think. I, I'm going to bet that's a way away. Um, when the human, the funniest person on the planet is a robot. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's, then we're done. But, <laughs> but um, I think for a very long time, we're going to have a, a natural inclination for our tribe because, because you know, the, 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 the advantage that humans have is that we really understand humans a lot better than AIs do. And so um, I, I, I think, so I'm not saying, I'm not talking about the long term, I'm talking about the near term. I think in the near term, I think this process is a lot slower than we think, and there's plenty of room to adapt. But nonetheless, there are truck drivers that will be losing their jobs. And I differ from most people in that I think people are a lot more malleable than we believe they can be, and even older people. And I look at the U.S. military, and I have not very many good things to say about it. However, the one thing they really know how to do really well is train and educate. And they, they, they at scale, at mass scale, they take people with very few skills and they give them very high skills very quickly and efficiently and effectively. And so in a certain sense, we know how to teach people new skills at scale. We have the technology, we have the ability, um, we have the capability. And so... Um, I don't think there's inherently uh, uh, like 
a problem in retraining uh, truck drivers to be computer repair, you know, uh, auto auto car repair people or um, the other new things that will even come around the fact that you have this very large system of robot-driven cars. That itself would create all kinds of new opportunities. And I don't think that we inherently are unable to do that. I think we may lack the political will to do that, but I think that it's um, that it's possible to retrain people of any age if we wanted to. So you don't immediately go to something like universal basic income as a... Well, you know, the thing about UBI is I think this is an experiment worth trying. And I, and I, think, um, I, I think this is one of those things that we simply don't know how effective it will be until it's tried. And I know that there's experiments going on, and I think there should be more of them. And I think we should look at the data again. I mean, I think I really am a big believer in trying things and looking at the data. And, and I would use that to try and guide what happens next. If, if it works somewhere, you try it again. If it doesn't work, you find out what, what you can. But so, yeah, to me, rather than before I instituted nationwide, I would certainly look at wherever else in the world it's being tried. And I would, I would really look at the evidence and then try and guide it from there. I think it's I think it's something worth trying, and I don't think we can know exactly what happens until we try it. It's one of the things that has to be you know used. So I'm in favor of experimenting with it, and I have no preconceptions about whether it actually would work or not. Right. Well, so Kevin, there's there's one other topic which is an enormous one where I think we may disagree. I'm pretty sure we do disagree, or we, we used to disagree, <laughs> but we we've got no time to talk about it. So I, I, just to plant the seed yeah. for a future conversation, I will recall you to the moment we first met when I was. It's really one of the first public talks I ever gave. I, I it was on the book tour for the end of faith, and uh, you and Stuart Brand hosted me at at the Long Now. Foundation, I think it was it was a talk at the Fort Mason Center. You were the, you were the MC, and I gave my you know ninety minute spiel of just pure sacrilege, trampling on on every form of of religiosity. And at the end, when you, when you were emceeing the the Q and A portion, you basically ambushed me by saying, "I believe in God. Why am I wrong?" or something like that. I don't know what answer I gave at that point, but in any case, you and I have a conversation we could have about religion, which I certainly look forward to, but that'll have to be for, for another time. Yes, it'll have to be another time. It's it's a much longer conversation. And uh, what can I say? Um, we probably don't disagree as much as you might think. I, I don't think we disagreed in this conversation as much as we might have thought, but it was certainly enjoyable and, uh, and hopefully useful to our audience. I love the work you're doing, and um, it was great to get a chance to finally um, meet you on the podcast. No, and as I said before, I'm, I'm really honored to be here, and I think you're one of the best uh, interviewers that I know about, and um, I've had a lot of experience being interviewed, and you ask fantastic questions in a very smart, intelligent, and humble way, and I um, just uh, had a great time, and thank you for having me on. If you find this podcast valuable, there are many ways you can support it. You can review it on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you happen to listen to it. You can share it on social media with your friends. You can blog about it or discuss it on your own podcast. Or you can support it directly. And you can do this by subscribing through my website. at samharris.org. And there you'll find subscriber-only content, which includes my Ask Me Anything episodes. You'll also get access to advanced tickets to my live events, 
as well as streaming video of some of these events. And you also get to hear the bonus questions from many of these interviews. All of these things and more you'll find on my website at samharris.org. Thank you for your support of the show. It's listeners like you that make all of this possible.